So plenty to reflect on. I'm going to ask Linda, who is going to speak to us, if she'll come up and we'll pray for Linda as she brings a reflection on the passage that we've just heard. Father, your grace goes before us and we pray that through the words that Linda will share that you would speak deeply into our hearts and minds and help us to journey through your word and also journey in our own lives to the place of life you call us to. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, good morning. Oh, that's interesting. I wasn't expecting that, but it's great it's there. Slavery. It's a, an ancient phenomenon, and we heard about it this morning in the scene setting, a story from three and a half thousand years ago. But it's also a modern day phenomenon, and we hear more and more about that, for slavery is much in the news today. And perhaps that's one reason why a film entitled, can you guess? 12 Years a Slave, won numerous awards at the Oscars this week. It's a film that's based on a true story. It tells the harrowing tale of Solomon Northup, a free black man from New York who was married with a job as a musician and a family. And in 1841, and this is 20 years before the Civil War, Solomon was tricked and abducted and sold as a slave to work the cotton plantations of the southern state of Louisiana. Unable to escape, Solomon struggles not only just to stay alive, but to retain his dignity and his humanity. And it takes 12 years until eventually he meets a Canadian who is working for the abolition of slavery. And this chance encounter changes his life forever. And if you want to know more of Solomon's journey and fate, then you'll have to go and see the film, because I'm not going to tell you. I won't spoil it for you. But why not write a review for the website afterwards? The journey that Solomon makes in the film 12 Years a Slave is a journey from initial freedom into slavery, and then beyond that, towards a new freedom that is shaped by his powerful wilderness experience. And Solomon's story and his journey is not dissimilar to that of the people of Israel, as described for us in the book of Exodus. And if you've got your Bibles handy, I'd love you to open them and turn uh, to not the page that we read the reading from, but Pages 49 to 55, because there you'll find the closing chapters of the book of Genesis, which recount for us how Joseph, who had risen to a position of great power and influence under the Egyptian king or pharaoh, invited his father and his 11 brothers, along with all of their families, livestock and possessions, to join him in Egypt, where they would find security and relative prosperity. And this situation appears to have continued relatively unchanged for several hundred years, with Joseph's brothers and their tribes living peaceably alongside the people of Israel, the people of Egypt. It's catchy. 
alongside the rulers and also, of course, the pharaoh. And they even collaborated economically during this period. And in time, of course, Jacob and all his 12 sons, including Joseph, died. But God, as Jane was telling us, had blessed Jacob's family as he had promised. And their descendants were numerous and spread throughout the land of Egypt. But as we know, with the passing of time, so comes the fading of memory. And after 300 years, a new king came to power in Egypt. A king or pharaoh who didn't know anything about Joseph, or as in the translation this morning, to whom Joseph meant nothing. So he was not aware or did not acknowledge the great debt that Egypt owed to Joseph. Nor did he have any respect for the God whom Joseph and his family had worshipped and served. Instead, Pharaoh saw only the threat posed to him and his people by a different ethnic group who were numerous and potentially powerful. And of course, ironically, this is a modern day tale that we see played out in our own day in the Ukraine and in many other parts of the world. And so began, for God's people, a slow and relentless journey from freedom into slavery. As the policies of the ruling powers in Egypt gradually conscripted the Israelites into forced labor on huge building and restoration programs for the cities of Pithom and Ramesses. And when this didn't seem to solve the problem of population control, a drastic new policy was introduced, the killing of newborn baby boys, what we might today call a policy of ethnic cleansing. And so the journey of Joseph's family, from initial freedom and blessing under the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, to a state of slavery, under the rule of a very different master is complete by the end of that first chapter of Exodus. And the stage is set for a new chapter and the emergence of a much-needed hero and potential saviour, as we shall see in the weeks to come. But before we move on to that perhaps slightly more exciting part of the story, it's worth reflecting a little more on what it means to be a slave or to be enslaved. Few of us, if any, will experience the sort of slavery that Solomon Northup or the Israelites in Egypt knew. But it is possible to be enslaved mentally, emotionally and spiritually, not just physically. And Lent gives us a valuable opportunity to reflect on those influences that can control us and our lives, but that are not good for us. Those forces that do not have our best interests or our well-being at heart in the way that God does. And through Lent, God challenges us to consider what sorts of enslavement we may need to be set free from. 
Now, if I had been preaching in the medieval period, I probably... Well, I wouldn't have been because I'm a woman, but (laughs) that's definite. But I might have embarked on the seven deadly sins as a list of the sorts of enslavement, but I'm not going to do that today. What I'd much rather do to help us think about this for ourselves is to try and draw out from this first chapter of Exodus three different types of enslavement. And each type relates directly to our ordinary everyday lives as human beings. But each one has the power to oppress and crush us just as surely as any tyrannical pharaoh or Egyptian slave master. If we look closely at the darkening story of the Israelites in Egypt, one of the first things we notice is how their working lives changed for the worse. Instead of being shepherds caring skillfully, not only for their own flocks, but also for those of Pharaoh, which they were invited to do when they arrived at the end of Genesis. The Israelites became indentured laborers supervised by slave masters. They are forced to work on building sites in brick and mortar or to labor in the fields pumping the waters of the Nile for irrigation. This is hard labor. It's a far cry from the working life and pattern that was originally created and ordained by God himself in that verse from Genesis 2:15 that we read earlier where God took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work and to care for it. And I wonder if sometimes we allow the way we work whether this is paid or unpaid work, to become a form of slavery, a form of slave master in our lives. Even though we might not necessarily choose to use that particular label because it bears no resemblance to the sort of slavery that we read about in today's newspapers. But are we tempted to allow work to dominate our priorities? Our waking hours our energies, our family life, our time spent with God. Does that become the priority for us? Could it be that we're tempted actually to see our ultimate value in work or what we do during our waking hours? But is that what God wants for us? Is God challenging us perhaps to reflect and to reprioritize this area of our life? And again, it's irrespective of whether we are in paid or unpaid work and whatever the context. And I can tell you that uh, clergy people are just as prone to this, whether they're paid or unpaid, as Matthew and I can testify. It is easy to be enslaved by our working priorities. But surely, Genesis tells us that God calls us to a healthy and a holy balance. A second aspect of the deteriorating situation for the Israelites was the gradual breakdown of human relationships with those whose land they were sharing, the people of Egypt. At the end of Genesis... 
we saw that despite being from a different faith and culture, Jacob's family had settled well into life in Egypt, and they were making a significant contribution to the economy and to the well-being of the nation. Three centuries later, things had gone badly wrong. And by now, this immigrant population had grown in number and were increasingly perceived as a threat by the ruling authorities. Sounds a bit familiar, doesn't it? Too many foreigners, particularly from Eastern Europe, taking our jobs, filling up our schools and hospitals. It's tempting very tempting to buy into that sort of attitude and language, isn't it? And I know how easily I myself can be swayed by the messages I hear and see in the media day by day, week by week, month by month about issues of immigration. It's easy to allow public opinion or so-called public opinion, to shape our attitudes and for these attitudes to become entrenched and to enslave us. But God calls us to welcome the stranger and to show hospitality, even to those who may seem to pose a threat to us. And interesting, later on in the life of the history of the people of Israel, in the book of Deuteronomy, God will charge his people several times to show kindness to foreigners precisely because they themselves were once strangers and slaves in a foreign land. And a third and final type of enslavement which we might think about is slavery to fear. Fiona touched upon this in her reflections a couple of weeks ago when she talked about Jesus' teaching on not being anxious. Fear is a powerful influence in our lives. It's a cruel master that can dominate our entire existence, waking and sleeping. Understandably, we fear for ourselves and for those we love. We are fearful of what the future may bring or what it may not bring. We are fearful of poverty and loss. We are fearful of growing old and of death. Fear seems to be part of the human condition and it's all the more so when circumstances deteriorate and life is threatened. And that's certainly the situation that we find in that first chapter of Exodus. Of course, the Israelites were fearful for their future. But perhaps one of the most remarkable and inspiring elements of the Exodus account, and one that I feel is often neglected, is the story of the Hebrew midwives. Though they had every reason to fear the king and the Egyptian authorities, Their commitment to God was greater than their fear. And even when they were called before Pharaoh to account for the failure of his ethnic cleansing policy, they stood their ground and they answered him. Fear of Pharaoh's wrath could not displace their obedience to the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. 
perfect love cast out fear. Or at least it overcame it. And so through their example, we get a vivid glimpse of what God calls us all to in and through Lent. For God asks us to consider those parts of our lives, our priorities, our attitudes, and our emotions, where he is no longer at the center of our being, where he is no longer enthroned as king in our hearts and minds where we have allowed other slave masters to take his place. He invites us to consider prayerfully and practically how our affections and our appetites may have become enslaved by other masters. And I've always believed that in Lent, he beckons us with him into the wilderness so that we may come to know and love him better as we journey towards the freedom that he promises. Amen.